Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew, chapter 16, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from the first 12 verses of this chapter of the Gospel, the good news about Jesus, according to Matthew. Jesus is engaged in two conversations here. Both of these conversations I would find exasperating. Uh, but the Lord Jesus responds with his characteristic wisdom. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples, they forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, oh, you of little faith, why are you talking about your, among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I have bad news for you this morning. It's about your weight. Uh, British, reach, British researchers have spent the last several years combing through the medical records of 200,000 anonymous British citizens, and they have tracked from 1999 to 2018 their weight. And during that period time of time, the vast majority, the vast majority of people don't failed to lose weight long term. The chances of you losing weight long-term are nil. If you were overweight or obese in 1999, chances are very high that you will be overweight or obese in 2018. Does that discourage anyone in the room? Does it surprise anyone in the room? Uh, we spend billions of dollars, billions of dollars a year trying to lose weight. And there's always a new diet just around the corner that will help you take it off and keep it off. But statistically, the odds are not in your favor. Now, there's reasons why. We could probably think of some reasons why. One of the reasons that come to mind to, to me is that we just have developed habits, deeply embedded habits and patterns toward food that are difficult to uproot, if not impossible. 
I mean, think about the energy that it takes. At the end of a day, when you have fulfilled all of your responsibilities and done all of the things you committed to do, it's been a busy, hectic, hard, tiring day. It's really hard to muster the willpower at that moment in time to convince yourself that what you really need is kale and not a Kit Kat bar. It's really hard to do that. It, 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 most people don't lose weight long term. This passage that I just read to you is about uh, a, a change like that, a, an earth changing, a, a significant uh, losing weight type radical change. Actually, the passage on the surface is about food. It's about bread. Do you know how many carbs there are in Matthew 15 and 16? There's bread all over these chapters of Scripture. There's bread on the surface, but underneath it is the change, deep, significant change, permanent type change. Actually, this whole section, we haven't talked about this very much, but this whole section of Matthew that we're in, starting in about uh, chapter 13 and continuing through chapter 18, even further, maybe a little bit, is about this grand change. There's a hinge point in the gospel of Matthew, and that hinge is that Jesus is turning his attention from the Jews that live in Palestine, and he's turning it increasingly to his small band, the disciples, and he's turning his attention increasingly to the Gentiles that live outside of Palestine or the Gentiles that will come to him for help. There's this turning that's happening in the Gospel of Matthew. This turning, this observation, it probably doesn't land on us like it would have landed on Matthew's first readers 2,000 years ago. We have that history that, that um, changes our perspective and how we read Matthew. But remember one of his key questions that Matthew tried to answer for his readers, his first readers were, what this question, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, then why are not more of his followers Jews? Why are there more Gentile followers of Jesus than Jewish followers of Jesus? If he's their Messiah, why are there so many Gentiles in the church of Jesus? We don't ask that question very often. We're not used to asking that question. We, the church has been a majority Gentile for uh, as long as we have all been alive, for hundreds of years. But if you read the New Testament and you look for it, you know, this issue comes up a lot this relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the church. And sometimes it's a tense relationship. I wonder sometimes if there would be Jewish evangelists who would go into synagogues and try to preach about Jesus. And undoubtedly, somebody would raise their hand and say, if Jesus really is the Messiah, why are all these Gentiles following him and not, these, not Jews? Why is that? How, how can Jesus possibly be the Jewish Messiah? I'm sure it was the question in evangelism. Paul was concerned when he wrote his letters about how the church would function having Jews and Gentiles together in it, in one fellowship. Um, we don't have that specific question so much in our cultural context, but those are helpful discussions that Paul has in the book of Ephesians and some of his other letters because there's always been ethnic tension of some kind in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, this is one of the things that makes Christianity unique in, in the world. The, the, the majority of followers of Islam, the majority of Muslims in the world, come from an Arab cultural, Arab cultural context. The vast majority of Hindus in the world are, by ethnicity, Indian. The majority of Buddhists in the world are Asian. 
Christianity is not the same. There are followers of Jesus on every continent in, in multiple cultural and ethnic contexts. And sometimes we followers of Jesus struggle to get along with one another. Just think though about how unique this makes Christianity. This is the month of Ramadan. This is the month of Ramadan in Islam. And uh, uh, faithful Muslims during the month of Ramadan will read the Quran, the Quran in its entirety. But in order to read the Quran, you have to read it in Arabic because the Quran is only the words of Allah if it's in uh, Arabic. So whether you understand it or not, you have to read it in Arabic. How different Christianity is. Christianity goes into places where there is no written language and we write the language down and then we translate the Bible into their language so they can read God's word in their heart language. Christianity is in, on every continent and, and spread across multiple ethnicities. Now, think about the significance of that and what that means for your life. From an eternal perspective... What that means is that you have less in common with your neighbor who lives next door to you who's not a Christian than you do with a Nigerian woman who lives thousands of miles away who is a follower of Jesus. So you can talk to your neighbor. Uh, you, have, you have a lot in common you can talk about, right? You can talk about the pain of being a fan of the Phillies, how, how difficult that is. You can talk about, you can complain about paying taxes, you, can, you have the same schedule. You probably eat the same sort of food. You, you, you basically live a life very similar to that neighbor who is not a follower of Jesus. You, you feel some sort of kin, kinship with him. But that dear woman who lives in Nigeria, who has eight children and lives in a cinder block house and buys her vegetables at an open market, many of which you wouldn't recognize what they are, and cooks over a fire, she's your sister in Christ. You have more in common with her than you do with this man who lives right next door. Because the church of Jesus Christ is broad, beautifully broad. But there is this tension, there is this tension in the New Testament between Jews and Gentiles, and it's formed in part in this section of Scripture where Jesus is up to something new. Jesus is making a turn. And we're going to think about this turn in this passage because it helps us understand what the church is in distinction from the Old Testament people of God. This passage helps us understand how the Bible is put together. I want to show you that from a few different books here as we think about the, the God's unfolding plans. This helps us set our priorities as the people of Jesus. What really matters to us as Jesus makes this turn? What does he emphasize? That's what we want to uncover in these 12 verses that are before us. Uh, just for simplicity's sake, I want to organize our thoughts around two headings, and they're not brilliant and they're not new. We're going to talk first about, uh, of all about out with the old, and then secondly, we're going to talk about in with the new. Let's start with out with the old, and in, my, in, in particular, I'm thinking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're the villains who appear for us in Matthew chapter 16. When you read the word Pharisee in the Gospels, you are used to it. You automatically hear in your mind the Darth Vader theme song, right? Dun, 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 dun. What's amazing is that the Pharisees have brought their evil stepbrothers, the Sadducees, with them. It's odd that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would be together because the Pharisees and Sadducees, these two groups, are ideological, cultural, political opponents. The Pharisees, we would be more comfortable hanging out with the Pharisees. They're the conservatives. They 
uh, value Scripture. Uh, they value Scripture so much that they have written extra rules to help them to make sure they obey Scripture. They, they are conservative. They are committed to worship. They're committed to God. Uh, mostly, we'll talk about their, their troubles. But, but they're, they're the conservatives. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are... Well, there's less Sadducees. They're centered around Jerusalem. They are really dedicated to the temple. They don't believe in the traditions that the Pharisees believe in. They don't accept all of the Old Testament scriptures. They only follow and read the first five books of the Old Testament. And even then, they read them pretty loosely. The Sadducees are the rich, elite liberals. And this group, these two groups are coming together to question Jesus. This is odd. This is like uh, the Democrats and the Republicans coming together. Or this is like evangelical and mainline Christians. This is like Eagles fans and Cowboys fans getting together and coming to Jesus. What they have in common is that they despise him. He's too liberal for the conservatives and he's too conservative for the liberals. It's a reminder, I suppose, that Jesus, no matter where you are in whatever spectrum you think you're on, Jesus always challenges the values and disrupts your inclinations. He always does that. Jesus, if, if the Jesus that you read in the Gospels is not pushing you uh, out of what makes you comfortable, then you're probably not following the real Jesus. So, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come together, and the text says that they're testing him. That word test appears in Matthew. It appears in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan comes to test Jesus. So, here they are again. (laughs) Matthew does not want us to think well of these men as they come to Jesus. They're testing him. They don't believe in Jesus, and they want to discredit Jesus. And the way they want to discredit Jesus is they want to prove prove to everyone that he can't uh, present his own credentials. He can't defend himself. He can't give them a sign from heaven that he's who he claims to be. Uh, They want Jesus to fail. They know he can perform miracles, of course. The Pharisees claim to be able to perform miracles, you know, those horizontal things. Anybody can do a miracle, right? But we want a sign from heaven. We want a sign from God, something indisputably indisputably from God that you are who you claim to be. And Jesus is not going to play their game. He's not going to play their game because he knows they're not asking sincerely. These are not not, uh, warm-hearted men who are seeking valid confirmation. They don't want help from Jesus. They want to hurt Jesus. The other thing we realize when we read the Gospels is that Jesus doesn't do miracles to impress arrogant skeptics. When When a man brings his lame daughter to Jesus and he sets her before Jesus. Jesus doesn't reach out and heal that little girl because he wants to impress skeptics. Jesus reaches out and heals that little girl because Jesus loves little children. That's why he does miracles. He doesn't do miracles. He's not a performing monkey. And truth be told, Jesus has already given them enough evidence. They should already have enough evidence. He doesn't play their game. In fact, he refers them to their own abilities to interpret the signs of the weather. Verses 2 and 3, of course, the foundation of that statement, that, that phrase that we still, still have. Do you, you, ever, you ever say this? 
Red in the morning, sailors take warning. Red at night, sailors delight. Okay, Jesus is, this is what he's saying here in this passage. You know how to look at the sky and read the weather. Why? Why don't you, you ostensibly religious men, why can't you look at what's happening with Jesus and understand what's going on with him? Their problem is not the signs. They, they don't need more signs. Their problem is their vision. They need sight, not light. And, and Jesus says, you are a wicked and adulterous generation. Now, I think that Moses, sorry, Jesus is pointing us back to Moses and something that Moses said about the Israelites this, this will be important later, but I want to take you back to Deuteronomy 32. There's going to be a verse that's going to appear behind us. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, 1,500 years before Jesus, has led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He led them for 40 years wandering in the wilderness. He knows what kind of people the Israelites are. And just as they're about to go into the promised land, Moses delivers this summation of the law, this great long sermon, Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 32, 5, Moses tells them what he has learned about them by being their leader, and it's not a compliment. He says in Moses 32, uh, Deuteronomy 32, 5, Moses says, they are corrupt. He's speaking of the Israelites. They are corrupt and not his children to their shame. They are a warped and crooked generation. From Hebrew to English, we get warped and crooked. From Hebrew to Greek to Aramaic to English, we get evil and adulterous. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator who made you and formed you? Jesus sees in these Jewish leaders the same things that Moses saw 1,500 years ago in their forefathers. Look what he says in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 32. Jeshurun, which is another name for Israel, another name, grew fat and kicked, filled with food. They became heavy and sleek, spoiled cows, he's comparing them to. They abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to false gods, which are not gods. Gods they had not known, gods that had recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. And Jesus, when he refers to the people as the, the Pharisees and Sadducees as evil and adulterous, he's saying, This is what you are. You're just like your forefathers. You are wicked and unfaithful and demanding and perverse. You have lost the way. You Pharisees have lost the way because you have elevated your tradition over the scriptures. You Sadducees have lost the way because you have rejected the scriptures themselves. And this marks your whole generation. And we begin to understand here why there are so many Gentiles in the church or so few Jews in the church in this turning that Jesus is making. This is the generation that rejected him, that crucified him. Now in verse 6, he says, he, he speaks about their teaching and how the Pharisees and Sadducees teach. Be careful, verse 6, Jesus said to the disciples, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, now, uh, your translation might say yeast. Your translation would be better if it says leaven. So would mine be. 
There's a difference between yeast and leaven. Uh, yeast, of course, you, you know what yeast is. You add it to your flour. Leaven, here's where leaven comes from. Leaven, when you do your weekly baking, you mix up your, your batter uh, and uh, your dough. Sorry, you mix your dough. And, and uh, before you do its final shaping and put it in the oven, you cut off a piece of it and you set it aside, a little piece, and that's leaven. You set that aside and let that sit for uh, a week until the next week when it's time to bake bread. And then you get out your flour and your ingredients and then you get that piece of dough and you mix it in to that, that leaven and you mix it into the dough and the yeast, <coughs> excuse me, the yeast that has been growing in that little patch of leaven works its way through the whole bread, and, and that's how you get this week's batch of, of dough. That's what leaven is. And Jesus says, be careful, because the teaching of the Pharisees is, and Sadducees is like leaven. And if you let it into your heart, it will grow and spread and infect and infiltrate everywhere and everything. Be careful of that sort of false teaching. Be careful who you listen to. This is the sort of teaching that rejects Jesus. Why, why does he call them an evil and adulterous, a wicked and adulterous generation? They have, in clinging to their traditions, refused to acknowledge and refused to accept Jesus. We should see here in this passage, this is a grievous sin in the Gospels. It's a grievous sin in the New Testament. How can it be? How can it be that these people who had received so many blessings from God, when God showed up, they didn't welcome him. They crucified him. How can this be? What we see here is some of the working out of, of, of this disposition against God, this sinful attitude that all of us have. This is a uniquely bad sin, but it's unique in its degree, not in its kind, because all of us have within us the roots of this same sort of sin. They had received so many blessings from God, so much blessing. They, it, their blessing should have led them to be grateful to God and earnest and, and devoted. Instead, what their blessing produced in them is self-righteousness and boasting and pride and judgmentalism. What do the blessings of God produce in your life? Do they make you a more devout person? Or do they cultivate laziness? Do they make you more, more grateful, more generous, more earnest? If, if this is what God has given me to this point, how, what more can he have? I want it all. Or, or do they, does God's blessings, do they make you self-righteous, proud? This is a picture of William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was a British parliamentarian. He was a faithful follower of Jesus. You may have heard of him before because he was the politician most responsible for the abolition of the British slave trade. William Wilberforce had a number of children, and none of his sons, none of his sons shared in his, their father's faith. None of them had their warm-hearted loyalty to the Lord Jesus. How can that be? You, you, well, you think to yourself, he was a politician, he was busy, he probably neglected his sons. Actually, he was a very devoted father. He played with his kids all the time. 
This is a picture of J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was a British man too. He was an Anglican priest. He was a faithful follower of Jesus. He taught the Bible. He wrote well about the Bible. He was a good author and writer and thinker. He had sons. None of his sons followed him in the faith. How can this be? How can you be around such caring, loving, godly fathers and yet walk away from the faith? What do the blessings of God in your life produce? Do they make you earnest, grateful, joyful, or do they make you proud and self-righteous and judgmental? That's what's happening here in this passage of Scripture. Jesus is emphasizing that, teaching us about this in the lives of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and out, out with the old. Now, let's move on. We're going to talk about in with the new now, and we're going to think about God's new loaf God's new loaf. We're thinking about bread. Uh, some of you during the pandemic, because you were stuck at home, became bakers and you made all kinds of bread. God is a baker too, and he has a new loaf. We're going to talk about that, but first we need to think about uh, the distraction of the disciples, the distraction of the disciples. So after Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees and Sadducees, they, uh, Jesus gets in the boat and they go across the lake heading out of Jewish territory toward Gentile, Gentile territory. And Jesus says... Be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I have no idea how they did it. I don't understand it at all. But the disciples think that he's talking about the fact that they forgot to bring bread. I, it defies my, my understanding, my imagination. Maybe they think that Jesus is telling them not to buy bread from the Pharisees. I don't know. And they're hungry. Hungry people are not always smart people. Hungry people tend to be forgetful people. Jesus has to say, you little faiths. He's used this phrase before, right? It's like a title. You little faiths. You little faiths. Don't you remember? Don't you remember? Here's something for you to think about. I don't know. You think about it. Jesus um, seems to be thinking about the numbers a lot here. Don't you remember five loaves for 5,000? And seven loaves for 4,000. Now, does that strike you out a little bit? Shouldn't it be five loaves for 5,000 and seven loaves for 7,000, right? Shouldn't it be? Where's the other 3,000? Okay, I have a theory for you. I don't know if I believe it or not, but it works kind of nicely. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down and Peter stands up and he preaches in Jerusalem the good news about the Lord Jesus and a number of people became followers of Jesus on that day. Do you know how many people it was? 3,000 people were saved on that day. Maybe that's where they came from. I don't know. It would, it's really nice. You'll have to ask Matthew and Jesus if they had that in mind. I don't know. Just a possibility. Jesus seems to care about the numbers and the disciples should have learned. They should have learned. Come on. Guys, don't you know that now that you're following Jesus, having no bread is not your problem? It's not a problem anymore. I think Matthew is, is recounting this uh, uh, to us because he's warning us. Jesus is doing something new. He's turning. He's making a new, he's up to something new. And one of the dangers is that his people will be distracted from what he's doing, his new thing. The disciples are distracted here by their lack of bread. And, and we can be distracted by Jesus' new work, uh, from Jesus' new work 
it, it happens. We can be forgetful and distractible. Sometimes pandemics can do it. Pandemics can be distracting. We're so concerned about keeping people safe that we forget why we gather together in the first place. Building projects can be distracting. Very careful thought about what color paint goes on the wall without thinking about the, the gospel that needs to be preached inside that paint. It can happen. God have mercy on us. It can happen. Distractions. Well, that's the disciples' problem. Let, let's talk about what the constitutes the new, and this is so exciting. The sign of Jonah. We're going to think about the sign of Jonah. Does Matthew 16, astute readers in the room will realize that Matthew 16 verses 1 through 4 sounds somewhat familiar. In fact, uh, Jesus had this a very similar conversation with the Pharisees and teachers of the law back in Matthew chapter 12, and he expanded a little bit in Matthew chapter 12. Look at Matthew chapter 12 verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Sounds so familiar. Matthew records this twice. I think it happened twice. Matthew records it twice for us because there's something really important here. Uh, then in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus explains the sign, uh, what the sign of Jonah means. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here." The religious leaders, they will not accept the evidence that Jesus has given them. They will not accept his mastery of the law of Moses. They will not accept his power over demons. They will not accept his ability to stop a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says there's one more sign coming, and, and trust me, you will see, you, will under, you should. It should be enough for you. Just like Jonah disappeared for three days and came back, so the Son of Man, so I am going to disappear into the tomb for three days and I'm going to come back. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the sign. It's the sign that you should heed. It's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's the sign of Jonah. Now, follow me for just a minute here. There are some of you, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are asking Jesus for a sign because they don't believe. They're skeptics and they want to, to discredit Jesus. There are some of you in the room who you reach certain points in your life, circumstances crowd in, rock your world, and, and you want a sign too. Not a sign from God because you're a skeptic, but you want a sign from God because you're a believer and you're really struggling with doubt at this point in time. And if God... The circumstances in my life that you say at this point in time are such that it's just easier for me to, to believe that God has forgotten me than that he's faithful. So if God could just give me a sign that he loves me. I, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that the sign for this, these skeptics and the sign for you who are struggling, the sign is the same, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Does God love me? Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Does God love me? Yes. Look at the cross of Christ. Think about Paul when he wrote this. 
Paul was a little bit younger than the Lord Jesus, but, which means that he was alive when Jesus was crucified. Before Paul had any inkling that, that, of, of the love of God in Christ Jesus, before Paul had thought about repenting, before, when Paul was still engaged in his pharisaical tradition, uh, 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 trumping over the Bible lifestyle, before he had any thought of turning to God, God had provided for Paul a Savior. While I was still God's enemy, Christ died for me. Does God love me? He demonstrates it. Does God really, is God really going to work out this suffering in my life for my good? Look at the cross. On the cross, God himself addressed the greatest threat that was arrayed against you. The greatest threat that any human being could ever face is the threat of the wrath of God because of your sin against him. But on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath uh, that you deserved, suffering in your place, the punishment you deserved because of your sin. And, and now suffering is just his tool. Does God have a future for me? Does he have a future plan for my life? Look at the cross and the resurrection. Christ is risen and all who believe will be risen with him. Oh yes, yes. This is the sign. This is the sign. The resurrection, the crucifixion, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the sign around which we build our lives. It's the message we exalt in. It's the message that we build our lives on. It's the message that we encourage one another in every week when we gather. Think about the cross and think about the empty tomb and the wonder of that. This is the sign for us. It's the center for us of our existence as a people. That's the sign of Jonah. Even more, though, even more, though, I go back to Deuteronomy 32. Remember? Deuteronomy 32. Jesus said to the people in his listening audience, you're a wicked and adulterous generation, just like Moses in Deuteronomy 32 said to the Israelites in his generation. Now, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses had said something else to the people. He said, um, God is speaking, Moses is quoting God, the Israelites, they made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. Now what's God going to do? How's God going to respond? I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. Now follow me here. Moses predicts this back in Deuteronomy 32. And 800 years later, 600 years later, somewhere around there, God calls Jonah the prophet. And what does Jonah do? God calls Jonah, and instead of sending Jonah to Jerusalem to talk to the Israelites, God sends Jonah to Nineveh to talk to the Assyrians. And you know how terrible the Assyrians are. They're the worst. The Assyrians are God's enemies. They're ruthless. They're cruel. They're terrible people. And God sent a prophet to Nineveh. He sent a prophet to Nineveh. Can you believe that? What's God doing? Ha <laughs> ha. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 32. Jonah did it in the book of Jonah. And now Jesus says to this crowd, the sign of Jonah. Do you know what is going to happen now? Jesus is turning. 
He's turning in this passage from this generation of Jews that will not receive him, and he's turning to a people who are not a people, a nation who is not understanding. He's turning to Gentiles in Matthew chapter 16. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 11. He seems to recognize this plan in Romans 11. In Romans 9, 11, 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul is speaking about God's promises to Israel. Does God, make, does God keep his promises? What about his promises to Israel? Is there a future for the Jewish people? Look what he says. Verse 11 of Romans 11. Again, I ask, did they, this generation, did they stumble, the Jews stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, there he's referring to the rejection of the Lord Jesus, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to what? Make Israel envious. It's exactly what Moses said, was gonna, what God was going to do in Deuteronomy 32. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, they rejected Jesus, Jesus turned to the Gentiles, um, how much greater richer, greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Paul's thinking about the day that there'll be a, a repentance of the Jews and a turning to Jesus. When they repent, just imagine how good that's going to be. I am talking, verse 13, to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry and the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if they're rejected and brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Notice, Moses, Jonah, Jesus, and Paul all reflecting on this truth, on this turn that is taking place in Matthew 16 as Jesus turns his attention from this wicked and adulterous generation that has rejected him to a people who are not a people. And Paul thinks about it and he's astounded and he says at the end of Romans chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgment and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul says, who would have thought of this plan? Who could have come up with this? But God did. Jesus here is turning to the Gentiles, but it's not because he's been outsmarted by this wicked and adulterous generation. It's not because he's been outwitted or outplayed. It was part of God's plan from the beginning, and it is amazing. The sign of Jonah. Now we turn finally to God's new loaf. God's new loaf. Jesus had said, New work, I'm up to something new. Don't bring the old leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, their old teaching, into the new people of God. And Paul, again, builds on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look what 1 Corinthians 5 says. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians 5, there is a, uh, Paul describes a great deal of sexual immorality, horrible sexual immorality in the church in Corinth. And the people in Corinth are proud of it. The Christians are, are, are proud. Look how tolerant we are of this gross sexual immorality must God be happy with us because of how tolerant and open-minded we are? No, Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Ah, God's a baker. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
So follow Paul. For every Passover feast, you need a lamb who is slaughtered. The Lord Jesus is that lamb. You need bread. Who's the bread? The people are the bread. God's making a new loaf. Don't bring into the new loaf the old leaven of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and don't bring in the, new, the old leaven of the immorality, the sexual morality of the Corinthians. Don't bring that into the new loaf either. This is the new work of Jesus. And in the new work of Jesus, there's a new teaching that centers around the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And there's a new sort of living. We follow him in obedience to his commands. If he does not return between now and next Sunday, we're going to think again about this turning and this new work of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are grateful to you for your word, and we are grateful to you for how you have put it together for us so that we can understand, get a glimpse into just a portion of your great wisdom your great goodness. Lord, those of us who are in the room, the majority of us who are not Jews, we are the beneficiaries of this turning that takes place in Matthew chapter 16 and how grateful we are for your mercy. We are of the nation that has no understanding, as Moses said. We are those who are not a people, but you have rescued us through the Lord Jesus and made us your people and how thankful we are to you. Keep us by your sovereign goodness from being distracted by this wonderful news, this wonderful sign, the death, burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Keep us from being distracted by false teaching that would spread and poison the whole loaf. Lord, may you be at work in our congregation that we would be ever more responsive to your work that you do in us, that with joy we might honor the one who is our, your lamb who offered himself for us. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, amen.